surrounded by people that provoke you to growth. Because I think many of us get the itch to change the world, but really we got to stay in one place long enough for God to change us. And so often that happens through that community, that happens through getting rooted. And if you're here visiting, newsflash, we are not the perfect church. Because I'm in it and because you're in it, right? You find a perfect church and set foot in it. It's not perfect anymore because, let's be real, none of us are perfect. We've been here for about a year and a half, and we're not on the doorstep to perfection yet. But what's encouraging to me as a pastor is when I look at the New Testament. We have about half of our New Testament because even the Apostle Paul, when he planted churches, they weren't perfect. All these letters he was writing were giving encouragement, giving correction, and challenging these churches to grow and be more and more like the church God has called them to be. And again, and again, and again, and again through the New Testament, we see him addressing this issue of division and imploring the church to be unified under the blood of Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite passages he writes on this is Ephesians chapter 2. I'm just going to read one verse, uh, verse 16, where he says, Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. In his letter to the church in Corinth, he writes, Live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And then, in the, letter, in the letter Galatians, he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this list could go on and it could go on and on, but it's almost like Paul realized that mankind has a division problem, a problem that extends to our condition today in our culture as we look around. We're divided along dozens of different lines in the sand that demarcate us from them and this group from that group and the quote-unquote good guys are the bad guys. And It's a division problem that we've had for a long time. And I've heard people say it's worse than it's ever been. And I've heard it again and again, and it's so challenging because it's, it's easy to... to be almost narcissistic in our view of, of the condition today and self-centered and not realize that it's just the same conflict in a different context. Uh, I, I challenged one person and that said, well, maybe it's because we've been privileged in living from the predominant culture's perspective and not realizing all the trouble that we've seen. And then uh, there's also the fact that we spent all summer on technology. We have social media where we're seeing every instance. We're seeing everything that's happening almost as it's happening. And it's easy as we see the, the conflict to get panicked. But all the issues we see from the recent one in Charlottesville, a couple years ago in Ferguson, all the way back to the civil rights movement, go back further to women's suffrage, go back further to the world war depicted in the men's retreat video. It's a division problem that we've long had where man has struggled to find unity, where man has struggled to give each person human dignity. We've had this division problem and we had it for a long time. We're fractured people spiritually. We spark more fracturing in our society. We're hurt people, hurt people. All the way back to the first family in Scripture, all the way back in Genesis where the first brothers, one killed the other. See, for everything we go through in society, we have a book that has withstood the test of time, that has been battle-tested, and, and through every season of division, it speaks truth. And, and I want to speak tonight as we start this series, Long Division, I want to pull from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, the story of Cain and Abel. So I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, then I'm going to read briefly from 2 Timothy 3, and then we'll pray, all right? We'll start with Genesis Chapter 4, verse 1. 
said, now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of his firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, no, for I will give you, I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. He had the first tattoo. And it says, so Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Then I'm going to read briefly from 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. It's up here on the screen. It says, know this. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. We, we speak from ancient history, the beginning of time. This is talking about the last times. He says, difficult times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. And if you write in your Bible, that is allowed. You can circle that word. It's where we're going to park it tonight. Slanderers without self-control. Brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. So what do those two long passages have to do with each other? Well, that's what we're going to dig into tonight. But first, just let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you and pursue you. And we thank you that your scripture says, blessed are those that are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. God, tonight we say we're hungry, we want to hear from you, we want to know you better, and leave here tonight following you closer and looking more like Jesus Christ. God, I just pray through your spirit you would use your word to do just that. And everybody said, amen. So I, I mentioned the news briefly, and when I was growing up outside of D.C., we didn't have Facebook yet. We didn't have social media. We talked a couple weekends ago about how that's like the number one source of news for most people these days, but... Back in that day, we got the Washington Post. Didn't get it every day, didn't have the money for that, but we got it on Sundays. So that's how we got our news. And I remember one Sunday, my brother and I, for whatever reason, maybe we were especially amped to read the comics that day, I don't know, but we were racing out to get the newspaper. This wasn't a normal thing, but for whatever reason, we decided we were going to race to get the newspaper. Probably just because, as brothers, life is competitive, all right? Uh, my brother's three years younger than me, but he's also six inches taller than me. And somewhere growing up, he met me in body mass and girth and was passing me in height, and, and it, life was competitive, 
right? Everything from going to get the newspaper to eating mom's food. She was a great cook. I don't know how my sisters didn't starve because my brother and I just found ways to eat more and more of it. My brother had the trinity of marshmallows, peanut butter, and pretzels. If you couldn't find them in the pantry, they were under his bed because he would just eat them in the middle of the night. But uh, I digress. We were racing to get the newspaper. And I got the newspaper first. My brother got angry. He got a rock. Now, just in blind rage, he, he threw it. I don't even know if he aimed, but he was unlucky because it, it landed right here on my head. Opened this huge gash, bleeding all over the place. And my parents did not spare the rod that day. They did not spoil the child. My brother learned not to throw rocks ever again. And it sounds dysfunctional, and I'm sure maybe if we shared family stories about uh, how dysfunctional things were as kids and the crazy things we did. I mean, I once pushed my brother out of a tree, so it went both ways. So if we shared stories, no doubt we'd have a lot of dysfunctional stories, but I would argue that the first family we see in Scripture is one of, if not the most dysfunctional. I mean, think about it. The parents caused the fall of humanity, and their offspring killed each other. Like, at least my brother, all I got was a rock to the head. <laughs> I live to see another day. I'm here today. We got a good relationship. We love each other. But family, the institution of marriage, there's always this friction, the seasons of it, because it's two people or more doing life together that are imperfect sinners, being sanctified slowly by God. And, and we realize that Cain and Abel, they were the first born sinners, born sinners opposite of a winner, Remember when I used to eat from the tree of life for dinner? Don't worry about that reference if you don't get it. But when Cain and Abel heard their parents speaking of the good old days, they didn't roll their eye back in their head like we do when our parents or our grandparents talk about it because for them, it was the good old days. They were in the Garden of Eden, eating from the tree of the garden, right? Walking in communion with God like nobody else had. But then because of the curse, life got hard. Childbirth brought pain. Working over the soil brought sweat and toil. So it says that as Cain grew up, he became a farmer. Abel was a rancher. And they come, it says, to worship God, and they bring an offering to God. And Cain, the farmer, brought from his crops, naturally. Abel, the rancher, he brought from his flocks, naturally. And we read this story, and we know where it's going. And I think so often we jump and... We look at Cain and we look down on him as, as beneath us and we shake our finger at Cain and we think we're better than Cain. But he's already, in just a few sentences in Genesis 4, shown to understand worship better than so much of a majority of the church today does. Because he understood, we see he understood that worship wasn't just about showing up and spectating. Worship was about what can I give back to God? What, can I, what sacrifice or offering can I give to God? Not just come to show up and consume or, again, spectate. got to realize when, when my worship becomes about my needs, when my worship becomes about my consumption, what I'm looking for, are we worshiping God or are we really worshiping ourselves? Because our worship for God, if we're coming to worship God, we should come with the question, what am I offering to him today? Is it my family, my future, my finances, my talents, my time, whatever it is, because we come with this perspective that he's either Lord over it all or he's not truly Lord at all. So Cain had this understanding that, hey, worship means I'm giving something back to God, almost as we just saw the masters, right, dedicate Samuel back to God. And we talk so often about how when we read Scripture, and I'm guilty, I like to think of myself as David, as Moses, 
as Jesus in the interactions with the Pharisees, but so often we need to fall in line with the Canes, or in this instance, fall behind him. Because even he, again, understood worship is bringing something to God to offer back to him. And a whole lot of ink has been spilled through history about what was right and what was wrong about their offerings because the Bible, it doesn't spell it out for us. And many point to laws about sacrifice, but those hadn't been given yet. And it's not a sacrifice to bring, but an offering. And Old Testament offerings were often grain or harvest like what Cain brought. But we look in Scripture. There's two key verses later in Scripture that look back to Cain and Abel, and we realize that it wasn't about what was in their hands. It was about what was in their hearts. Like Hebrews 11.4 says the following. It says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. I love that in the message version, it says it was what he believed, not what he brought that made the difference. Again, it wasn't about what was in his hands. It was about what was in his heart. And then we see in 1 John 3.12, it talks about Cain. It says, we must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. See, Abel had faith and Cain was struggling with unbelief. And Abel was there at this offering for an audience of one, but Cain got crippled and caught up in comparison and jealousy. God refuses Cain's offering because it, it was all about ritual, but there wasn't faith. He was just going through the motions. So Cain gets angry, doesn't apologize, doesn't ask for a redo. He just starts fuming. And you got to realize that if you have a brother, you understand this thing is twice as painful because, again, life is brothers. It's competitive. The pull of the comparison trap is, is twice as powerful when you've got a sibling that you're doing life with. And as he's getting rejected, his brother's over here, and his offering is accepted. And listen, Cain thinks that he has an issue with his brother. But his issue wasn't with his brother. Abel didn't reject his sacrifice. God rejected his sacrifice. His issue was with God. But taking issue with his brother, jealousy and envy creep up in Cain's heart. You can do three things with envy when it creeps up in your heart. You can give it to God and let him deal with it. You can kind of uh, push it in, internalize your jealousy and get either depressed or worked up. Or you can externalize it and act out. And I love that God, just showing his grace, showing his, his heart for grace, he warns Cain. He comes to Cain before he even, even has a chance to act. And he says to him, why are you so angry? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. In the Amplified version that kind of digs into the meanings of each word, it says the following. If you do well, believing me and doing what is acceptable and pleasing to me, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well but ignore my instruction, sin crouches at your door. God is saying, in essence, look, your problem is with me. It's not with your brother. What's on the line is your obedience to me, not some competition you've got going on with Abel. And God lets Cain know, hey, there's a, there's a sin issue here. He warns Cain and urges him to deal with it. But how often in our lives do we get the prick of conviction, God laying his finger on something that we need to deal with, but we just get on with it and move on. And we see Cain goes on with it. He invites Abel out into a field thinking nobody will see, and he kills him. Then God confronts Cain again. 
Again, I love that God comes to Cain in grace. Doesn't come storming in, he comes asking questions. Almost like it's an opportunity for Cain to confess, an opportunity for Cain to repent. But we see ultimately, Cain is punished, he's sent east of Eden. It says in Genesis 4.16, so Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Then Cain founded a city which he named after Enoch, his son. This first city is built by hands that had murdered in new sin. And even post-flood, at the time when they were building the Tower of Babel, it says that man was migrating eastward, still moving east of Eden. And we see man just moving further and further from what God intended, becoming more and more violent. And we realize that even as we build today, we still build broken. That's why in our cities and civilization to this day, we find domestic violence, gang-related killings, murders, school shootings, tribal massacres, genocide, even war. There's this darkness and brokenness in man. Now, I'll, I'll listen to all kinds of perspectives. I love to listen to what people believe is, and just understand where people are coming from. But if you start telling me that, that man is inherently good and, and there's no darkness in man, then I, I kind of tune out because you just look at the world and you see that there's something broken in us. You know, Steph and I, we just had our, our seven-year anniversary last week. And uh, we dropped Raj off at the parents' house, and uh, we took off, and we saw Wonder Woman, which I think came out in, like, 2015, but uh, that shows just how many movies we've seen since we came home with Raj, but we went, and we saw Wonder Woman. How many of you guys have seen that movie? Tammy liked it. <laughs> hey, it was, good. it was a good movie, but it takes place during World War I, during all the violence of World War I, and Wonder Woman leaves the seclusion of this island she'd been on to eliminate this Greek god, Ares, the god of war, believing if she does so, then all the violence and death and the war will go away because the god of Ares, the god of war, is out of the picture. But she finds that even in doing that, the violence doesn't stop, and she's left to ask the question we see and we ask when we watch the news and everything that's going on around the world, why is peace so elusive? Why is violence so widespread? And the answer we see from the beginning of the Bible at the first violent mover, move, murder, I can talk. It's because all these years later, we still do life like Cain did. The deception we continue to walk in is that our issue, our issues in life are primarily man-to-man issues. If we just deal with the man-to-man, then we'll come to the solution. But our problem isn't with that group or him or her. Our, our problem is with God. And Cain bought into the lie of the enemy that my problem is with my brother, my problem is with my neighbor, and I can deal man-to-man and find the solution. And Wonder Woman kind of had it half right. <laughs> she thought that her problem or our problem was with a God, but truly our problem is with the God, the one way, truth, and life. The deep-rooted issues that lead to division, they're not going to be healed man-to-man because the issue isn't man-to-man. The issue is God-to-man. Romans 5, chapter 8 excuse me, chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, says the following, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That little phrase in there is key. We were God's enemies. Because that's a powerful thought, but it's a thought we have to come to terms with to understand God's grace and our inherent need for it. You know, you may hear it said often in our progressive pluralistic culture that, hey, we're all God's children. 
And that's a comforting thought. It's flowery and it, 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 it is comforting, but it's not entirely biblical. Now, where this comes from is, is, yes, we are created in the image of God, the imago Dei. Every face you see on the news, whether it's a convict, whether it's a police officer, whether it's somebody that just passed away or somebody that just did something amazing, they're all created in the image of God. They have inherent value because of that. There's value in human life. And in a society where it seems like we're valuing life less and less from abortion to the killings we see on the news and elsewhere, we need to shout that from the rooftops that each person we pass every day is created in the image of God. They have value because of that. But children of God, those that inherit eternity. You know, John 3.16 says God gave his one and only begotten son, his one son, Jesus Christ. The rest of us, we come, become children of God through adoption. John 1 says that all who believe and accept Jesus, God gave the right to become children of God. You know, if there's no belief and subsequent faith and life change, then we don't walk in that inheritance and that promise. You're still a child of the flesh that stands condemned. We were God's enemies, and it's only through Christ that we're reconciled and come to reconciliation with God. But in the man-to-man conflict of Cain and Abel that we just read, again, so often we put ourselves in Abel's shoes. But again, we see reasons that we're Cain. Cain killed an innocent Abel. Jesus says in the book of Matthew that Abel was a righteous man. Cain killed Abel. We killed an innocent and righteous Jesus. You know, some of you may have never considered this, but it's, Jesus died for us. Jesus died because of us. And we, you could say, killed Jesus the same way Cain murdered Abel. It says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins. You can read that. He was delivered over to death for my sins, yours and mine. When Jesus died, he died as a substitute for my sin. My hands are as bloody as Cain's. Cain murdered his brother. It says in Romans 8 that Jesus is our brother. It says God chose them, us, to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So I can't stand and look at Cain and shake my finger. I need to realize I fall in line with him, an enemy of God that's condemned because all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. It says in Romans 3. And sin isn't just some cute concept or idea. It's rebellion against the king of kings. At the heart of sin is we declare war. It makes us enemies with God. And our true division problem, it's not man to man. It's man to God. But we've operated in mankind for so long in our humanity, just from this, these dichotomies we make, making our problem with other men. We've, we've lived divided with this concept of us and them. Psychologically, psychologists call it like in-groups, the us, and, and out-groups, the them. Psychologically, we're social organisms that seem hardwired to make basic dichotomies about the social world. It's virtually universal among humans. You see it among even primates and other social animals that were hardwired to divide the world around race, gender, age, all these different lines in the sand. It's even basic childish things like some of y'all drink Starbucks coffee. Some of y'all drink Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Some of you post a Facebook picture with one, then y'all go to war over which one's better, right? It's the same with, as a kid, I was growing up chasing those comics out in the street. I like comics as well with superheroes. And I got Marvel comics because DC comics were for those people. There was just this snobbery you fall in line with. Avengers versus Justice League, all these movies coming out. And don't even get me into sports rivalries, because I will. Somebody asked me to, because I will, right? <laughs> we went to Disney World. Uh, Steph and I, it was my first time ever going. We're going to Magic Kingdom. There's this big ferry that you take, not like Tinkerbell, but a ferry boat. Um, riding a ferry into Disney World would be awesome. But, but it takes, I don't know, 
10 minutes. So there's this guy on the ferry who had 10 minutes to come and talk to me. And here's the situation. You know, there's some cultures um, where you wear a hat like the one that Anthony wearing. Anthony's wearing a fitted, right? And you don't consider the team that's on the logo. You just wear the hat because it matches your shoes and your shirt, right? I used to have dozens upon dozens of hats. Some of you guys knew me in a season where you would never see me without a hat. And a lot of times I didn't think about the logo. I had this Red Sox hat that I think either Nate got me or Mark McAllister. Yeah, clap while I take a drink. Sorry. Talking into the water bottle. <laughs> this is going nowhere fast. But we were on the ferry. I'm wearing a Red Sox hat because it matched my attire. And I don't watch baseball at all. So <laughs> he comes up to me right as the ferry's landing. Again, he had 10 minutes to come over and talk to me. But he comes over and said something, some kind of trash talk about something that maybe happened the year before. Maybe the Yankees knocked the Red Sox out of the playoffs. I don't know. But he comes over and he says something about somebody. None of it registering in my mind because I don't watch baseball. And then, like, gets out of there as fast as possible. And I was just left confused. Like, I don't even know what this man's talking about because I didn't watch baseball. And it took me about five minutes. I'm looking at Steph, like, what was he talking about? And I was like, oh, I'm wearing a Red Sox hat because I realized he was wearing a Yankees hat, right? So a total stranger on this boat, because I'm wearing a, a hat of another sports team, decided he was going to come over and as, as quickly as possible talk trash and then go the other direction. Not that I would have started saying anything back because I know nothing about baseball. And you might laugh and roll your eyes at that example, but we're all sucked into these us and them groupings. It flows from instinct and survival over human history because there's protection in groups, there's pooled resources in groups, there's satisfaction as social beings in belonging in groups, but there's also downsides. Simply acting as a member of a group changes how people behave. Like if I was wearing another Yankees hat, this guy would have come up and pounded me, even though he didn't know a thing about my life. He just knew I like one team or the other. You know, people's thoughts, behaviors, and feelings towards other it escalates when it goes from me to you to us and them. We just have this more aggressive template for group-to-group -group interactions. And in biblical terms, grace, it goes out the window. But as, those, as we grow, as we become adults, it's not just Marvel and DC. It's not Nintendo and Sega Genesis. It becomes more significant groupings, more divisive groupings, Republican and Democrat, liberal and conservative, black and white, blue lives and black lives. Consistent patterns of us and them in race, in politics, in policy. See, politics so often uses this divide and conquer strategy, and so does the media. The agenda of the media isn't to inform you, it is to make money. Crisis sells, division sells, and in most escalated cases, when you just feed division and feed it more and more, it can result in some of the conflicts we see in history. But I mean, think about it. If I say white privilege right now, for some of us, walls go up. If I say racism, Walls go up. If I say blue lives matter or black lives matter, we retreat to our corners and ready to throw verbal jabs to those people that think like us, who look like us, behave like us. We're divided along so many lines in the sand that we can retreat behind because we're a fractured people spiritually that fractures into groups in society that becomes these us and them groupings, this man versus man opposition again and again. And we don't grow up just learning how to divide numbers. We feed this impulse to divide ourselves into groups, not realizing that the chief issue, again, is not man to man. It's man and God. I've already had a couple people who saw the sermon series titled Long Division and are like, really, math? Nat, 
during the greeting time. My wife, literally, before I came up to preach, she's like, long division? I finally get to sit in on a sermon when Raj isn't here, and I got to listen about math, right? I'm not a math person, so don't worry. It's not going that direction. But how many of you guys grew up with the textbooks for math where you had all the problems in the book, but then if you went to the back, like the odd numbers, the answers were there, right? And you'd have to show your work, but you knew, hey, if I can't get this, the answer's in the back, right? Jesus, Jesus is like the answer, the solution that's in the back, just waiting for us to turn to him, right? Waiting for us to look to him. Because you can't look to God for your righteousness and your salvation and simultaneously in self-righteousness look down on another human being. You just can't do both at the same time. See, Jesus died on the cross bearing the wrath of God in our place in order to reconcile to God a people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Again, Ephesians 2.16 said that together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Galatians 3.28 we read earlier where it says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in an overflow of that reconciliation with God, we're called to reconcile man to God. Reconcile as mankind one to another. And that order is important. Because until we reconcile with God, we'll never see the reconciliation we're looking for from one man to another. Again, you talk about math. I'm not a fan some of these guys, like Tyler and Wayne walking out, yeah, I'm talking about y'all. They know math way better than me. Fantasy football league, they put some message up with an equation. I'm like, what are y'all doing? Right? I don't understand any of this, right? I never took math higher than pre-calc. Here's a confession. Right? I took pre-calc, and I, uh, when I went to college, William & Mary, right? Like an academic boot camp, I started asking around. I'm like, what can I take to get this GER out of the way that is just going to be easy? I found out there was a class called Math Powered Flight. Basically, geometry meets physics, and the professor would let you bring an eight and a half by 11 sheet in every test with whatever you wanted to put on there as a cheat sheet. And I got to that first class, and I saw Lane Campbell, quarterback of the football team, and I thought, I did well. (laughs) He was right there in the front row. I'm like, yep, found the right class. So chances are when Raj grows up and he starts taking math classes, I'm going to tap out real fast being able to help him. I'm going to be like, hey, go ask Tyler, somebody in the church, right? Not even your mom. We're both going to be like, hey, whatever. But one thing I can handle when it comes to math is fractions, all right? And with a lot of fractions and problems involving fractions, you can't find the solution until you find the common denominator. And again, we've got a division problem along many lines, race, nationality, gender identity, classes, and alike. And we've been trying to find the solution in all the wrong ways, man to man. But see, Jesus is the preeminent one. He reigns over all our differences, and he binds us all together. Jesus is the common denominator that allows us to find the solution to all our fracturing and all our division. And once we find him, we can then find the solution to all these problems we struggle with because of division. But again, until we get reconciliation right with God, we'll never get reconciliation right in mankind. We'll experience the same problems, and then we'll rally around the same causes, just with different hashtags. And we may see a brief respite from the violence, but until we deal with our hearts, it all starts over again. All these systemic systemic issues we rally against, they come from problems in our own system, in our own hearts, and in our own minds. We may find, again, temporary peace from these issues, But there will be a war inside of us that continues to spill out into the world until we reconcile ourselves with God. That's not to say these systemic issues in our society aren't worth addressing. They're certainly worth addressing. 
Racism goes against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Sexism, ageism, classism, nationalism, all these things can become issues. But our long division problem will continue to cripple us until we reconcile ourselves to God, first and foremost. But biblically, as you read throughout the Bible, right, as God reconciles us through Jesus, as we just read in Romans chapter 5, he sends us out as ambassadors for reconciliation. You see that in 2 Corinthians 5. This, it's the same pattern, but in the opposite direction. Once we've reconciled to God, man to God, he calls us to reconcile man to man. There's a unity we're called to. And we aren't called to qualify who deserves the love of Jesus or determine who's dignified enough to be reconciled to God. It's for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So if that person's on the planet, then Jesus loved them. We're called to love them and reconcile with them. The person you struggle to honor, Jesus died for. The person you struggle to have compassion for, Jesus had so much compassion for that he went to a cross for them. Jesus took this perspective of us versus them and, and gives, gives us, the church, his kingdom perspective of us for them. It's division replaced by unity. Lines in the sand erased by love. Battle lines crossed to embrace our enemy in the love of Christ. But are we walking in it? Because we read in 2 Timothy where Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says that, hey, in our time, the time we're walking in, in later ages, people would be in the church that that struggle with different things. And one of the things he said was irreconcilable, 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. This word means one who is unwilling to reconcile, this call that we have as Christians, unwilling to be at peace with others, unwilling to negotiate a solution to a problem involving a second party. He uses this ancient Greek war term, meaning a refusal to enter into a treaty, to take a posture in which no flag of truce is allowed to pass between the parties. No terms of reconcile is listened to. And the irreconcilable party refuses to bring a state of war to an equitable close. Even in a stalemate, he won't lay down his weapon. It's a man so completely and utterly blinded by his belief that the problem is man to man, that he can't let God deal with it. Not realizing that the heart issue he grapples with is just like Cain's and sin is creeping at his door. And the only way to, way to deal with it is with God. And as Paul makes clear to Timothy, this person will not only keep up the fight, he will also contend that he's actually acting in accord with the Christian faith, maintaining that his irreconcilability is biblically justifiable. You know, the Pharisees operated like this in a division that they found justified, Jews and Gentiles, us and them, insiders and outsiders, uh, the righteous, and many people they would call sinners in the gospel. And here's what you got to realize. We're all sinners. There's, there's self-righteous sinners, people that are like, I got this, and then there's self-aware sinners who offer their sin over to Jesus to deal with at the cross. We're all sinners. But there's this famous account in John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery. And it's so easy, these stories we've heard again and again, to just read quickly through them, like the one of Cain and Abel, the one in John 8 with this woman caught in adultery. Like these stones that they lay down at the end, they're not just stones they're playing with. They were stones they were going to launch like missiles at this woman to kill her. Can you imagine her cries for mercy in that moment? But this wasn't a person created in the image of God to those Pharisees in that moment. It was a pawn. It's a problem they could put before Jesus to trap him in, a riddle, stone her and uphold the Old Testament law or set her free and stand against it. But in this account, Jesus, this is the one where he stoops to write in the sand. He says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Jesus wasn't concerned about winning some academic dispute. He was looking to save the woman who was broken and outcast. But how often does the church walk in the shoes of the Pharisees? 
more concerned with debates and looking right than actually reaching the people who are hurting right in front of us, where we operate out of this us and them mentality. You know, a fool is concerned with winning talking points, but a wise man is concerned with winning people. A fool is concerned with looking right, but the wise person is concerned with loving right. You know, being right is not a fruit of the spirit, but love, gentleness, kindness, these are. And so often, we debate and look to win arguments instead of win people. I mean, our evangelism in our culture these days is, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'd love to tell you about it. <laughs> That's our idea of evangelism because it's become about us and them. This righteous and those sinners mentality of the Pharisees where we believe that it's man to man when really that's the deception that Cain walked in. And we kill our brothers and sisters spiritually when we pick up the weapon of the enemy, which is shame. So many of these debates, like Facebook, I've never in my life seen a debate especially political or over anything doctrinal, where at the end they're like, you know what? You made some really good points. I've changed my mind. Never happens, right? More often than not, it's shame on you for believing what you believe. Shame on you for thinking that. And it might not be in those words, but that's what's implied. That's the weapon of the enemy. You see Jesus in these moments, like with this woman caught in adultery, through grace being able to say, no, shame off you. Where the religious would stand and say, shame on you. The church needs to point to the Savior who says, hey, I lift that shame off of you because of what I did at the cross. That's how the kingdom grows. Not in battles between us and them, mano a mano, but through the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how he builds his kingdom. And if I could have the worship team come up, your timing was impeccable. You know, in our attempts to advance God's kingdom, as we're called to do, we ought to remember the account we get in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Joshua, who is called by God to lead his people into the promised land, he's going to battle for God the way God specifically called him to do. He's outperforming reconnaissance before they attack Jericho. And he comes across another man as he's doing reconnaissance holding a sword. So like the boss that Joshua is, he says, hey, are you with us or against us? (laughs) He's basically asking, are you with us or them? And this figure, which many people interpret to be God, says, neither. I'm commander of the Lord's army. He's saying, look, I operate on another level. I'm the ultimate independent because I run things. Ditch your political perspective for a kingdom one. The real question is the unspoken one that God poses to Joshua. Are you from me? And at this Joshua, he worships. He kneels down and he set out again with this us versus them mentality, man to man. He's called by God to go up against Jericho. But he has this encounter with God to refresh his perspective, that God's above all things. God wants to see all people saved, and he would do that through Jesus. And you know Jesus' prayer for the church happens in John 17. It's one of his prayers for the church where he says, May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. You know, our witness to the world, our ability to glorify God and point to Jesus Christ, it's dependent on our unity. Unity isn't some sideline issue. It's an essential issue. Dealing with, again, racism, sexism, classism, uh, nationalism, ageism, all these isms and schisms and divisions, it's essential. If the Bible speaks to these issues, then the church should speak to these issues. How could we ignore them? We'll be in this series for a few weeks, but tonight as we close, what's crouching at the door of your heart? What's holding you in division? Is it a problem with an individual? Is it unforgiveness and hurt 
you haven't been able to get over? Is it a perspective that sees things divisively? This, this political inclination to see us versus them rather than recognizing that you see people and you think, oh, it's those people or that people rather than that's a person created in the image of God who Jesus died for and I'm called to reach. Is it that our words more often throw out shame on yous than pointing to the Savior who, who lifts the shame off of us? Again, when we look to God for our righteousness, when we look to God for our salvation, it's impossible to simultaneously look down on somebody else. May we see that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and may we find reconciliation through Jesus, but not stop there. Again, share that reconciliation with God that's available, and then reconcile ourselves one to another. And again, we're going to be in this series for a few weeks, but can we just stand tonight and worship? Because we can worship tonight the common denominator, the one who is preeminent, who brings all of us together in unity. Let's live in pursuit of a unity that's a witness to the world. And just as Joshua worshiped before God, may we do the same in this moment. Jesus, we thank you, God, that when we were your enemy, God, when we were still in our sin, before we were even aware of the cross, you died for us with our name in mind. When you were suffering on that cross, dying, bleeding out, our face was in your mind, Lord God. You knew every person, God. We thank you that you sent Jesus to die for me, for us, each one. And God, just as Abel's blood cried out, God, your blood cries out. It tells us to come, come to your heart. If we're broken, if we're weary, if we're struggling, if we realize, man, sin is crouching at my door. It might be a habit, sin issue, might be something we're dealing with, we just listed. But God wants us to, in this moment, come to him, lay it before him and deal with it. But may we reflect on Jesus Christ and the work of the cross as we sing God of miracles and ask for a supernatural love. It's not easy to love our enemies. It's not easy to love those who are nothing like us, God, but we ask for a supernatural love. God, to give us boldness and courage to walk out the ministry of reconciliation you called us to. In Jesus' name.